Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is February the 2nd, 2012. It's Thursday, one day away from Friday, Friday, Friday. Also, the beginning of a new month uh, we had yesterday. I kind of let that slip by. More on that in a second. This is episode 833 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a cool guest hanging on the line. His name is David Consalvo. Uh, and he's not here to sell you anything. Doesn't even have a blog or anything like that. But he's, uh, guy has been working on his own orchard for 23 years. And he's learned a lot, as you might imagine, over two decades. And uh, considers himself a prepper and is going to talk to us about basically establishing kind of a survival orchard or a survival perennial planting system. Uh, what he's done, what he's had success with, what he's had failure with, and a uh, long-time listener of the show as well. So um, a lot of times these guests are better guests, I hate to say it, than some big-name people because they're straight out of our community. I love interviewing people like David. He's a great guy. I'll have him on in just a moment. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, you know what? You pretty much know what they do, right? I just told you by giving them their name, Bulk Ammo. You get lots of ammo there. You get it very affordably, and you get great customer service. Remember, your gun without ammunition is nothing but an overpriced club. That's what it is. You look at it. Imagine you have no ammunition for it at all, or you've run out of ammunition. You don't have enough ammunition to train with it. What do you have there? A big, heavy, expensive club. You could do a baseball bat, folks, for about 10 bucks. If you're going to have a gun, you need ammo to run it and to learn to run it right. So check out BulkAmmo.com today. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. If you want to make knives and you don't know where to start, go to KnifeKits.com. you never done it before, get yourself a DVD, some basic materials, and a basic kit, and some hand tools, and get going, and you will be able to make a knife this week. If you've made lots of knives in your life and you're looking for exotic materials from bone for handle material or Damascus steel or exotic steels or anything else you can think of, uh, really cool bolsters or something like that to customize stuff, check out Knife Kits. They have everything you need. From the beginner to the master bladesmith, KnifeKits.com is a great place to get your supplies. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I do put a lot of information out via Twitter and Facebook that does not make it on the show that comes in from the audience simply because I can't get it all on the show. So it's a great way to stay in touch with what's going on out there. Uh, some stuff geopolitically and some stuff economically and some stuff just in the uh, prepper world. So connect with me there. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And, uh, of course, you'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. Please send me an email before you uh, join. Just put, like, service discount or military discount in the subject line. Give me a little bit of details about your service, and uh, that's all I'll really need there. Don't go photocopying your ID card or anything like that. Some of you guys do that. I consider that a security risk for you and don't need you to do that. Just tell me what you did, where you were at, that type of thing, or where you, what you're doing and where you're at, depending on whether you're prior or active duty. And I will send you a discount code uh, just for you. Thank you for the service to our country. And that will entitle you to not just a discount when you sign up, but a discount on your recurring memberships as well. With that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up, but I have a couple notes of interest before I bring our guests on. I became aware of something yesterday that I'm really kind of excited about. It's uh, called Starbucks 2A for... for, for uh, I'm sorry, guys. It's the 2A for 2 Buck Appreciation Day. And here's what the deal is. Uh, they're going to do this on Valentine's Day. At least I say we should say we're going to do this on Valentine's Day, February 14th. I'd like you to consider doing this with me. Uh, Starbucks is, for a lot of intents and purposes, what you would call a yuppie brand. They have a very hardcore group of their, you know, their loyal customers that are the uh, eco-hippie type, that are the yuppie upscale type, that are the typical East Coast liberal uh, not that all hippies are East Coast liberal-ish, and not that all hippies are against guns. I don't want to come off that way, but you know what I mean. You know the people I'm talking about. If, like me, you've been to Starbucks, you've probably stood behind one of them while they ordered some pain-in-the-ass drink, and you just wanted a good cup of coffee, and they had like 15 different things they wanted done with it. That person. Uh, that is a huge part of Starbucks' uh, audience. 
about starting about a year ago, maybe a little longer, Starbucks started to come under increasing fire from their customer base to ban the possession of concealed carry permit holders' weapons inside Starbucks. There, there are, I mean, it, it, it was a huge push. It was on Huffington Post. It was on all the major news networks. And uh, you would think that a company with that much of their customer base vested there uh, with that type of a, you know, Washington State brand would be subjective to caving in under that. But they did not. Uh, there is it, The only way that you can't carry your concealed carry gun into a Starbucks right now would be if they existed inside a mall that forbade it, period, and there's no other entrance other than through the mall, or that it's just not allowed wherever that Starbucks store is. If a concealed carry is allowed where the Starbucks store is located, Starbucks follows the letter of the law. So in recognition of that, what people decided to do was come up with this day. And the way it would work is on February 14th, go to Starbucks and spend a $2 bill. If you turn the $2 bill over, you will see on the back of it uh, the rendering of the, of, the, uh, of the picture of our founder signing the Declaration of Independence. And, of course, two also standing for Second Amendment. So on 214, 2A for $2 Appreciation Day. I thought this was a great idea. I've already heard from some people that it's not that easy to get $2 bills anymore. That you used to go to the bank and say, hey, here's a 10, can I get five twos? And they would just do it. I'm going to try that this week and see if it works out. I'm going to tell you what, if it doesn't and you don't have any twos and you can't get any twos, I want you to do this anyway. Go spend ones, right? But just tell the clerk while you're there. And maybe if you see somebody in uniform, buy them a drink. Buy the, what are you drinking today, buddy? Let me get your coffee. Especially if you see a military guy there, like a recruiter or a guy that's just home or something like that. I do that anyway, you know. But and, and then tell them why you're there that day. That you're there to show appreciation for them. Now, here's what I want to say to a couple people out there. I've gotten some emails from people. I put this all out on the blog yesterday. Starbucks is not supporting the Second Amendment. Thank you, fellow in love. And then, there's no indication whatsoever that they're strong supporters. Shut up, okay? Shut the hell up. You know damn well if they let one independent manager ban the possession in one store that this community, this group, and I don't mean the survival community, I mean the whole pro-Second Amendment community would be, you know, boycotting every Starbucks under the planet because of that one store. You gotta understand the customer base that Starbucks has. Yes, people like me and you are part of it, but there is a huge part of it that really got in a wad over this, and as far as I'm concerned, Starbucks corporate doused their middle finger in latte foam and presented it in response and said, you know what, we're going to follow the law and we're going to respect the law and we're going to assume that a person that has the legal right to carry is the kind of person we prefer carrying in our store than the person that doesn't have the right to carry is going to do it anyway. And all the tripe that went out on uh, Huffington Post, coffee and guns, you didn't have guns in the coffee store, and all this crap, right, all this crap, they just ignored it. And they said, you know what, you don't want our coffee, go somewhere else. That's what you're doing. And you're going to say it to one side or the other of your audience in a situation like this. They say it directly and obnoxiously the way I would, because I'd be like, hey, if you don't have a gun, you can't come in, right? <laughs> okay, no, no. And that's not, and they are, you know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders as well. So they have to be politically correct about the way they respond to it. But trust me, if they weren't at least, uh, you know, in favor of the Second Amendment, there would be the decree that you can't carry. Or at least they would give the independent managers The choice. Well, they didn't. So we're not going to do this. So, to me, since we get so in a wad and we get so angry and we get so pissed off whenever anybody does anything, some, some newscaster, uh, says the word assault weapon and then all of a sudden people are freaking out. They're ding, ding, it is assault weapon. Well, going back to World War II, there kind of is, uh, or, or call something a bullet when it's actually a cartridge and people are like, that's any gun, right? They're that sensitive. Well, when a company stands up, stand up with them. So I'd appreciate it if on Valentine's Day you'd go over to Starbucks, buy a coffee specifically on that day for you or for somebody else, or buy a buy a scone if you don't drink coffee, buy a bottle of water, and, and, and do it with a two if you can, and do it with regular money if you can't, but pay in cash, that makes a statement in and of itself, and just say, you know what, I'm here as part of Starbucks uh, uh, uh Two dollars for or two A for two two dollars appreciation day. We appreciate the fact that you guys have supported the Second Amendment. And when that little snidey clerk goes back there and don't, well, fortunately for do your for you your employer doesn't because of that your job is more secure. So thank you anyway. And be very very nice when you do that. 
And, and then if you can, find somebody else to buy one for. I think it's a great thing. And I think if we're going to go on a rampage when somebody does something against us, then you better stand up when you get an opportunity like this, which is so simple because they're damn near everywhere, to do it when somebody stands at your side. And in this case, Starbucks, say what you want about the, 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 uh, the nose-pierced uh, person making your latte if you don't like that kind of thing. But I'll tell you what, the company stood up. The company stood up. The company did what was right. Let's do what's right. Uh, on the same note, I've had a lot of requests come in since yesterday when I put this out. Jack, why don't we start a National Second Amendment Day? And I think it sounds like a great idea, and it obviously has legs because I've got a lot of people emailing me about it. Well, I did some research. turns out there is one. It's a state-level thing done in Oklahoma. It was done on the day that the Supreme Court decision came out. I don't remember what the date is exactly. It's somewhere in June uh, that said that the Second Amendment does apply to the rights of individuals. So other people have suggested dates like uh, the Battle of Lexington Green. Uh, it's a great day for Second Amendment Day and what have you. Uh, since Oklahoma already has one, choosing a different date, I don't know if that makes sense. Why not take the inertia that they've already created? Uh, survival podcast is nowhere near as big as the state of Oklahoma. I think I could get some other podcasters and bloggers on board. I'm sure Brian over at ITS Tactical uh, would get behind this. and He's got a huge brand now, and we could make something happen with it. I want your thoughts on it, and here's what I think. National Second Amendment Day will only, or, you know, Second Amendment Day, I guess it wouldn't be national until it was ratified by, by the government, which may never happen. But no matter whether it's national or just Second Amendment Day, will have no legs unless it means something to people, unless we do something on that day. So I'd like your thoughts today. What do we do? And I'd like to propose that we consider one little thing here for Second Amendment Day, that if it's just we're all going to go out and buy a new gun or I'll go out and buy a box of ammo. I mean, do you really look forward to, I guess buying a new gun you look forward to, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think that if you think about the holidays that really hit with people, even that aren't big, like, you know, like end of year holidays, like Christmas or whatever, but the ones that, that stick with you are Thanksgiving and, uh, 4th of July, where people have some kind of a social function, something you look forward to. So this is going to be fun. We're going to go to the beach and light off fireworks or whatever it is, you know, grill out, cook hot dogs. So if we could come up with kind of a, um, a thing that people do beyond go to the range and shoot, I think that would be like an added function. But something that everybody could do and look forward to for Second Amendment Day, I think that we would have a much better chance of giving it some legs. I'd like the audience's thoughts on making a run at creating a national Second Amendment Day. I'll put my full weight behind it if I think we can figure out how to do it right. I'd also like your opinion on, do we just stick with the date that Oklahoma's already set since it has a sanctioning at a state level? And there may be other states that have done this as well. Uh, another thought that I had was it's easier to get things done at a state level than a national level. We could take uh, what was done in Oklahoma and templatize it and then let people kind of run grassroots in their own states. I don't see get hard, it, like a hard thing to get done in Arizona or Texas or Florida. Uh, I think that those states would, would be happy to entertain the, the concept of having a Second Amendment Day recognized at the state. And the more states you get to recognize it, the better. Just some thoughts. I'd like to hear back from you. Uh, please let me know in the show notes today. Now with that all wrapped up, I'm ready to introduce our special guest. As I said, uh, our special guest today is David Consalvo. David is a 55-year-old guy. Uh, he's been growing fruit trees in the same hollow called Hungertown in uh, central Virginia for 23 years. He started because of an interest in healthful eating in nature, but he's found that the orchard is also great for exercise, peace of mind, and since it's living food, it is, an, it is a standing storage facility uh, for being prepared long-term. He's learned a lot in those 23 years of working on that orchard, and he's here today to join us, and he's also a long-time listener of the show. David, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It is a thrill to be able to contribute to your podcast, Derek. Well, when I saw that you wanted to talk about basically growing a survival orchard, I was like, this is awesome. It's what I'm actively doing right now, uh, <clears throat> actually laying a lot of the uh, hardscaping as far as the irrigation and stuff like that and planting my plantings for this spring. Uh, so it's awesome. But you want to tell people just a little bit about yourself and how long you've been doing this and where in the world you've been doing it at? Well, it didn't start out as a survival orchard. Uh, I really started out with an interest in nutrition. Uh, even when I was a teenager back in high school, I was in the early 70s, I was the, the high school health food nut. Uh, back then, uh, any interest in healthful eating was in, indeed considered very nutty. Um, and, and I pursued it pretty seriously, both you know, academically and career-wise. Uh, but I eventually concluded that the, the way to get the, the highest quality food and the most nutritious food was to grow it myself. 
And uh, so eventually I was able to get this land, and uh, I, I found that um, uh, more satisfying than an annual garden, although I still do a garden, but, but the most satisfying thing for me was to, to have a, an orchard and something I could be building uh, building towards the future. And, uh, and, and, you know, previously, you know, I used to, you know, drive all over the place to go hiking and camping and such, and I, I found that once, once I lived out in the country and once I had, you know, was able to get out in the orchard every day, I didn't need to go driving, uh, to go be out in nature anymore. I was out there already. Uh, and also, uh, I found it was, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great way to get your exercise. I mean, I used to enjoy playing basketball and, uh, and and then trying to lift weights or run to stay in shape, but but really I, f- I find it uh, more compelling to to be producing something with all that excess energy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we used to camp a lot, and we we're like, we don't even camp anymore because where we live now, it's like camping by going out on the porch. Um, you said something real interesting, though. I'd like your thoughts on this. And this is kind of where I'm thinking with planting a lot of the perennials and long-term plantings and trees and bushes and vines. If I'm a gardener and Tomorrow morning I get hit by a truck. Unless somebody comes by and takes over from that point and continues to do what I was doing, all the work that I've done is kind of gone. If I've planted trees and bushes and shrubs and they're growing and maturing, then I leave something behind. Uh, yes, and, and I, I do it, you know, partly for my my wife and myself, you know, for our retirement, but also for uh, my kid and and anybody who might come behind. Um, uh, and yeah, you know, if you get hit by a truck and you're not actually killed, but you're actually just laid up for a year, uh, you could let an orchard completely go for a year and come back to it, and it's still there. Still, you know, 95% of your your trees are still living, uh, and you could go from there. Yeah, I know. I often look around and see all these fruitless pear trees and and stuff like that, and ornamental trees, and go. People pretty much know how to grow a tree. Um, yeah. It's not hard. There are some things that are probably big mistakes beginners make. Would you want to maybe mention a few things that people kind of do wrong in the beginning? Yeah, you know, uh, I would do a little, at least a little research before you actually start planting. And I know you and that uh, Vamos fellow a few weeks ago had talked about, you know, get some stuff in the ground. And if you want to plant some perennials uh, right away, you know you can put some uh, blackberries, raspberries in the ground, and you can get some positive feedback, you know, very quickly from those. And they're easy; it's a good way to learn. But if you're going to be planting a tree that uh, you're expecting, you know, to, to live for 10, 20, 50, 100 years, uh, you, you might want to uh, get it right to start. Um, and you know, with the internet now, it's so easy to to educate yourself, uh, at least you know somewhat on uh, on what you're going to be planting, what's suitable for your climate, uh, for your conditions. Uh, you know, if you're going to be putting you know five years of work into it to get that tree started, um, you know you, you don't want to have to wait five years to find out that that you really you know should have bought something other than the two or three apple varieties that you found at Lowe's. Sure, and I think there's a lot of that, like. Lowe's doesn't carry red delicious apples because they're the best thing for you to grow in Texas. Because I can tell you for a fact, if you're in Texas, red delicious apples are not a good crop for Texas. Um, There's a reason they do so well in Washington State, and the climates are very, very different. They put that there because when you walk in and you're of a consumer mindset and you go to the grocery store every week and see red delicious apples and that's what you buy and you see that on a tree and a little picture of it all nice and perfectly red – they know that that will trigger your buying instinct. It's not because they've optimized the plant selection. So what are some ways people can, you know, find out what the right varieties and species for their climate are? Uh, well, you know, one way is to, to find uh, some specialty nurseries. Um, you can really educate yourself uh, from nursery catalogs, uh, which, uh, you know, focus on just, you know, one or two species, you know, like uh, for for blueberries, there's finches in North Carolina. Um, and, you know, there's blueberries that grow great up north, and there's different species of blueberries that grow great down south. They sell both, and they explain that. Um, there's, uh, for nut trees, there's Nolan River uh, Nursery. Um, yeah, uh, Isons in Georgia focuses solely on muscadine grapes for the southeast. Um, and, great supplier, by the way. They're they're an awesome supplier. Uh, 
Uh, you know, if you find a nursery catalog where you read an entire page and, and there was nothing negative said about the varieties they're selling, they're not telling you the full story. Try to find a nurse. Go ahead. That's good advice. Uh, you try to find a nursery which will give you the minuses along with the pluses, and they're telling you the full story. Because I think there would be minuses for anything because, you know, obviously even the best variety for one area can't be the best variety for another area. <laughs> the single variety thing is what led to things like the lumper potato and the Irish potato famine. You, you know, it's, it's good to have diversity. Um, a lot of our people, like, are, you know, prepping and worried about systemic failures. So are there certain fruits uh, that maybe make more sense to grow if someday certain fertilizers or sprays, and even if you're doing things naturally and organically, there's still inputs that are used a lot of times. So are there things that maybe are, are less dependent on things like that? Yeah, I really, that's my style is a low input orchard. Uh, I mean, not only is it less work and it's less expensive, but uh, then if you do get laid up or if there's some type of hard times that are coming, then... Um, uh, you're still going to get, you have a productive orchard. Uh, one of my, my favorites, my biggest success, I've had a lot of failures, but one of my biggest successes has, has been a fruit that you mentioned, I remember a couple years ago, Jack, was kiwi fruit. Uh, they're a little hard to get started, but once they take off, uh, uh, kiwi fruits are vines, and they will, they will grow, uh, over, I've got one, one vine that covers an entire trellis and an entire shed, uh, and, um, no fertilizer needed, no spray needed. Apparently, there's no insects that cause problems. Um, just an incredibly productive year after year. That's very encouraging because I plan on growing quite a bit of those. And my thought was, like most vines, once they get to a certain length, if you just put that vine in contact with the ground, it'll sprout roots, and basically you're creating another plant, even though it's off the same. It's like a clone. Uh, do kiwis routinely do that? Because I, I just haven't grown any yet. Uh, that's right. In fact, I've, I've propagated some just this year uh, that way. And uh, not as easily as some other vines. I mean, you know, basically, there's, you know, vines, there's vines growing all over the place. And the low ones I'll cover with some dirt. And if it gets really dry, I'll throw a little water on there. Um, and then you uncover them a year or two later and uh, cut it off from the, uh, the mother vine. And uh, you've got a new vine ready to transplant. Awesome. Awesome. Or leave it be and just make it this monstrous structure, you know? Yeah. yeah. Are, there, are there any others you've had some, like, really good results with? And I mean, that's a great one because it's not – I mean, now I'm starting to – like, I saw kiwis at uh, Sam's Club, you know, kiwi plants. And I, this stuff's starting to get really mainstream now, I guess, because people are discovering it. But when I started talking about stuff like that three years ago, four years ago, you never heard about it in a garden center. Is there anything else kind of like that that maybe – is popular now or still isn't really well known that you've tried to grow that you've had great results with? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of obscure fruits out there. Uh, and, you know, as far as a low-input orchard, uh, you know, the, the American persimmon, you know, it grows wild, uh, at least in the eastern half of the country. And, um, you know, uh, I've still got the persimmons hanging from the trees right now. This is early February. Um, you know, they basically dry out on the trees sometimes. Um, uh, and you know they're not the best best tasting fruit, uh, and they're you know, sort of small and seedy. But you know, as far as a, a survivalist orchard, um, yeah, you know you can grow them in a junk area, and uh, and you know have your own you know fresh or dried fruit in February. Yeah, and if you want deer around, my God, they're deer candy. I mean, they. <laughs> I, I, one day I was hunting, dude. I'm up in the tree. I'm sitting there with my bow, and I'm kind of on this field line. And I see this little buck. He was probably, I really didn't get, he never got close enough I could tell. He was either a four-corner on both sides or a three-pointer. And he was eating persimmons around this tree. And I'm like, well, he's not going to leave. And he starts walking away, not coming toward me anyway. And all of a sudden, you know, it's dead still, dead quiet, and you hear plop. And one of those persimmons fell off that tree. And that deer spun around on a dime and trotted back over there and ate that persimmon and then went off. I, they like them, man. They're, <laughs> they are persimmon fiends. So it's, you know, orchards can also have detrimental effects on wildlife, but they can also help anchor wildlife to your area. And then you've got a protein source you don't really have to look after. Well, yes, I did find 
find out that uh, an orchard is quite attractive to deer. And, uh, and the deer and I have a good arrangement. They eat my trees and I eat them. <laughs> and I guess once you get a tree mature enough, then they're going to eat the stuff they can reach and the stuff that falls, and you can take everything else. That's right. You know, and that's another thing that I would recommend for beginners is is you got to protect every small tree uh, from the deer. Um, and, you know, I put a, a fence around every tree I plant, uh, and, and it doesn't need to be tall. Uh, you, could, you know, the deer can jump over a six or eight foot fence, but they don't like jumping into confined spaces. Correct. And so you could have a four or five foot fence, and if it's a small place, the deer is not going to get in there. I mean, it needs to be strong enough to the deer can't push it in, uh, and it, it makes it a hassle to mow or to weed around a tree. But but you know they will eat most species of of fruit nut trees, so you've got to protect them when they're young. About how old do they have to get before they can kind of stand on their own without needing that protection anymore? Um, uh, you know, it'll, generally for most species, it'll take a few years to, to get above deer height. And then once they're above deer height, you've, you've got to protect the trunk against the buck, too. You can take away the fence, and you've got to put something around the trunk for, uh, the trunk for another couple of years because they'll come and, and, and scratch their antlers on them. Yeah, yeah. I like seeing those when they're in the woods and I'm hunting. I don't like seeing buck rubs on my uh, my apple tree. I've just gotten, you know, up into that, that thick, heavy uh, state, and it's starting to frame out for me. You want to tell folks how long you've been doing this? Uh, 23 years. So you've probably got stuff that's pretty new and stuff that's been in the ground for two decades. That's right. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, I'm still obsessed by it. I, I'm still planting all kinds of things, but but um, you know, some things I planted 20 years ago. Uh, one, I'm still waiting for it to, to, to get the production. That's the ginkgo tree. Oh wow! Uh, you know, ginkgo, uh, the the flesh parts is awful. It smells like vomit, but inside is a little kernel um, which you can roast, and and they're great. Yeah, it's supposed to be a, a really great food, but. So you've had one on the ground for over 20 years and it's still not producing for you. Well, that, that's how long it takes. I'm, I'm looking forward oh. to it at the time. But you've got you to plant more than one, too, because there's male trees and female trees. Correct. You plant five trees and they happen to be all male or all female. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, have you discovered maybe any particular fruits that are best suited to certain climates within, like, you know, temperate U.S.? Uh, oh yeah, uh, you know basically there's two main issues. You know temperature, you know which is everybody familiar with. You know the north versus the south here in North America, but you know humidity is also a, a, a big factor. Uh, but you know I'll come back to that. But you know as far as uh, temperature, you know the, the people in the warm climates don't have all of the advantages. There are fruit that that only the folks in the north can grow. Um, yeah, I've, I've got family in New Brunswick, you know, uh, in eastern Canada, uh, and there are apple trees just growing wild everywhere uh, up there. Uh, the apples really like it up there, like it uh, in in the cooler climates. Uh, raspberries, strawberries grow right up there. The best blueberries are, are up north. Uh, even in the really cold areas of Canada, like Manitoba, Alberta, there's this berry called service berry. Uh, it, it has a lot of different species down more in the middle of the country. It's called Juneberry. Um, and there's, there's even you know, these Siberian berries that people can grow up north now. I think it's called, there's honeyberry and there's other berries that if you plant even in the middle of the U.S., like Missouri, you're, you're not going to get fruit, but only those people up north can grow. But you, you go down south to the tropics or semi-tropics, there's, there's dozens of fruits that we've never even heard of because they don't ship well, so they, they can't get them into the stores. Uh, but uh, so there's a lot of options if you grow down if you're down south. But if you're in the middle of the country, it's just uh, mostly the standard uh, fruits that you've heard of. Uh, but you know, then there's that east-west, humid, non-humid area. That's that's a big factor as well. Um, you know, particularly for for young trees. Uh, if it's if you're in a really dry climate, uh, you've got to baby them when you the first few years before they. Put down deep roots, deep solid, you know, uh, roots. You've, you've got to make sure they have adequate water during the hot summer, uh, or you're going to lose your trees. Now that's true in the humid areas too, but it's just more so out west. Sure, it's a harsh environment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then you know the humidity causes a lot of disease problems uh, in, in the east. I mean, if you wake up every morning in the summer and there's dew on the ground, 
uh, that means you're in a humid climate, uh, and that means that your trees took a bath every night, uh, and that really is promoting uh, that promotes fungal growth. So you've got to start off with uh, types of uh, plants that uh, are uh, resistant to various fungal diseases. And, you know, like with apples and pears, uh, you know, um, you know, just just pay attention to that. You know, look for disease resistances. But if, if you're out west in a dry climate, you can get away with more. But if you're in the east, you, you really need to pay attention to disease resistance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, I get I get both. I get dry season and and, and humid here. Uh, right in the middle of summer, I'll get a couple months of dry and a couple months of humid, just separated by uh, almost a line in the sand in January or not January, July that does that. You get this hot, humid May and June, and then it just just dry and doesn't rain for you know two months, July and August. So I get to deal with both of it. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been reading um, uh, uh, Edible Forest Gardens by Dave Jack, and I can't remember the other guy that wrote it with him, and there was something in there I kind of wanted to bounce off you uh, that I had really never thought of before. I had always read about what the country was like when people first came here. Uh, not people, but when white people first came here. And there were some glades and stuff like that. But most of the, you read these books that say like a squirrel in Massachusetts could have went to the Mississippi River without descending the trees. And that meant that somewhere the canopies touched, even if there were holes in the middle before we cut everything down. What they pointed out, which is something I just never thought of for a second, was, well, the same thing was true with the root net underground. And the sharing of nutrient and things like that between the root net was a big part of what prevented a lot of disease. And when we look at things like the chestnut blight wiping out the chestnuts, where I remember reading about, you know, hog farmers basically taking wheelbarrows into the forest and shoveling chestnuts for hog feed. Um, and now, of course, they're hard to find. That a lot of that disease problem is because we've wiped out that, that ecosystem that used to exist. And if you think about a root net stretching from the Mississippi River to the Atlantic Ocean, that's, that's hard to even get your head around. Yeah, we really have a, we create quite an artificial environment, you know, for our, our orchards and gardens. Yeah. Uh, so have you been doing like a lot of interplanting then? I mean, when you say orchard, a lot of people just think of like, you know, 20 nectarine trees and 20, you know, apple trees and 20 pear trees. Is it more permaculture-esque or is it more standard? I mean, how? what's, what's the layout kind of like? Uh, I live up in a mountain holler and I have just 10 acres, but even on 10 acres, there's a variety of, of, uh, types of soils and microclimates. Uh, and I don't have, uh, monoculture. I, I, I more have, uh, you know, a few of these over here, a few of these over there. And, um, it's more pleasant that way. It's more fun that way and take advantage of the, the, the microclimates uh, on the land as well. What are your thoughts on ways, like you mentioned blackberries and raspberries is one, because my thought is always that people get more excited when they get some kind of a result fast. So are there certain plants that are perennials that you can get into quicker production with uh, while you're waiting for those trees to actually pay off five, some seven years down the road? Yeah, just berries in general. I mean, blackberries are the easiest. I, I mean, you know, most most everybody has blackberries somewhere nearby that are a weed, basically. I mean, they're very tough. Uh, in fact, you plant like three blackberry canes, and if you just left them alone, you came back three years later, you'd probably have you know hundreds of square yards of, of, of blackberries. Uh, and um, you know blueberries, if you've got, uh, they need sort of a, a, a ground with uh, a lot of humus and acid. But if you've got that, you can plant those in there uh, and, and get uh, fruit pretty fast. Uh, Wineberries, um, or I don't know where they came from, but they're they're they spread themselves all over. What are they called? Wineberries. Wineberries. I'm not familiar with those. They look a lot like uh, like raspberries. Okay. But in fact, uh, I wanted to mention raspberries and wineberries are one of the few fruits that will actually produce some in, in a fair amount of shade. Uh, and that's another that's another issue that comes up for a lot of beginner uh, beginning. Uh, people just starting with planting fruit trees is, you know, most fruit trees uh, and brambles, uh, vines, if they're going to plant, if they're going to have enough photosynthesis to support themselves and you with the food that they're producing, they're going to need a lot of sun. Uh, and so it's pretty tough planting, um, 
most of the types of fruit and nut trees that we grow today, it's pretty tough planting them unless you've got a lot of sun. Yeah, the other things I've found that do well with some shade are gooseberries and currants. Um, they'll handle quite a bit of shade. I don't know if you've been growing any of those or not, but gooseberries, not so much as currants. Currants, you can grow them, I'd say, if you get 30% sun, it's more than enough. Gooseberries, maybe 45% sun. You can, so they, they don't have to have it continuous either. As long as there's points in the day that they get some throughout the day, they'll do well in the understory. I've heard a lot of people talk about pawpaw growing well in the understory. And I haven't, what I've seen though is that those are the people that are going, man, it takes 20 years to get pawpaws. Where the people that will grow them out with the better exposure are the ones that go, I don't know what you're talking about. I've got a tree fruiting in four or five years. Yes, pawpaws can grow in the shade, but they don't produce much fruit in the shade. Now, I think out west you can get away with more shade. Uh, you know, yeah. in the east here, uh, you know, if you're in full sun, you've got cloud cover about 40% of the time anyway. Yeah. Out west, you know, if you're, you know, if, if you're in a spot where it's, it's sunny 95% of the time in the summer, yeah, you, you, you could get away from more shade. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you that, like in Texas, when you read a plant and it says requires full sun, full sun in Dallas, Texas is not the same as full sun in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, dude. It is. Uh, you take certain things and put it in full sun in Texas, you will cook it. Um, it needs some shade, but it likes, like I said, a lot of these plants like to have like shade that kind of moves over them. So they've got sun, then they've got shade, then they've got sun, then they've got shade. They get that respite, you know, um, and, and I've seen things do much better. Now, one thing, as long as you've been doing this as much land as you had, you have to have run up against the fact that at certain times when you want to do things, the stuff can get expensive. When I start pricing out all the plants that I want for my property, which I'm only working with like a half of an acre to start out, I'm like, wow, this stuff adds up. So have you come up with some ways to propagate your own stuff? Uh, again, we come back to the, the bramble fruit, like, you know, blackberries, raspberries, you know, they basically propagate themselves. So that's, that's a quick way to get started and a quick way to spread. Um, uh, we talked about vines. You, you can uh, layer them onto the ground uh, and propagate themselves that way as they develop roots. Uh, some species, you can take cuttings and root them. Uh, grapes are typically propagated that way. Figs can be. Uh, you do need to um, make sure they have some kind of covering and where it stays humid in there until, until they develop their own roots. Uh, otherwise, the cuttings are going to dry out. Uh, uh, and then you get to grafting. Um, you, you know, you can plant seeds of, of just about anything, uh, but you don't know what you're going to get when you plant. You know, say you've got a, that, that red delicious apple you mentioned. If you plant seeds from red delicious apple, you're not going to get a tree that produces red delicious apples. Apples are very genetically diverse, uh, just like people. I mean, you know, my son is not identical to me, uh, and, uh, the same for the, the kids of any red delicious uh, tree. So typically what happens uh, is you plant the seeds, uh, you let the tree grow up for one, two, three years, and then you cut that tree off and stick onto it a stick or a bud of the type of variety that you want. Now, that's a little more advanced. I, you know, I got started with that by taking a, a Saturday workshop, uh, and that was enough to get me started. Now you can plant seeds. You can plant, you know, seeds of your persimmons, of you know, your apples and pears and uh, and whatever, and you'll get something. But it's not as reliable as, as what you're going to get. Now, my understanding is one of the one of the things that will produce fairly reliably from seed is peaches and nectarines. Yes, that's true, and cherries. Okay, cherries. I didn't know about cherries. I know that, like, if you're growing like apples for cider and stuff like that, there are certain varieties that pretty much like right. But you're again, it has a lot to do with climate where you get this kind of results. Like where I grew up in Pennsylvania, you get those really cold winters and you get the chill requirements that they like. There were apple trees, and like, we call them wild apples, but they were like these tart apples that would grow about half the size of what you'd see in the store, and they weren't bad to eat. They were just kind of tart, and they were everywhere. And there were little differences from each one, but they were all kind of the same. And when you talk to old-timers, when I was a kid growing up there, you know, about where these apple trees came from, who planted them, they said, oh, hell, everywhere he threw apples, apples just grew. Right. And, and that was kind of like the Johnny Appleseed thing. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Rain Tree Nursery. They actually have seedlings that are from one of the original, from grafts from one of the original Johnny Appleseed trees. <laughs> yeah. I've got a graft uh, from supposedly one of the original Johnny Appleseed trees. Oh, wow. 
no way we can confirm that. Sure, but, uh, sure. It's nice to carry on that legacy somewhat. Yeah, it's kind of a neat thing. Um, so we talk about propagating. Uh, the other thing that like, I've had people tell me, like, well, you know, apples need to be uh, similar or a similar timing so that you can get cross pollination, and, and that's true. But then they'll take it to the extreme, and I'll see somebody buy like eight apples that all mature about the same time. So that they can get, and I'm like, you don't really need eight of them to all to to do that. And maybe some crab apples would help. But my thought is, when you do that, you're going to get maturing times about the same, and you're going to get an awful lot of apples at one time. Are there things that people can do, you know, outside of not just apples, but overall to spread the harvest out so they get a longer harvest time and less of a glut at one point? Yeah, when you're studying what apple right, what fruit varieties or nut varieties to to. Uh, to buy from a nursery or to try to propagate yourself. Uh, yeah, that's typically, you know, something that's described, uh, you know, for you, like in nursery catalogs. Um, you know, shoot apples, you know, and pears, you can start harvesting in, in July and you can keep going to, till November. Uh, it really spreads out your season. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's something to pay attention to before you get, you get, uh, started. You know, commercial orchards, they want everything to, to ripen pretty close because they want to send in the crew and pick that orchard clean and then send in the crew to the next orchard and pick that clean. But for, you know, a homesteader or, you know, for somebody with a, a little backyard orchard, you, you want to spread it out. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've talked a lot about fruits, um, and, and I think a reason people are gravitating, gravitate toward fruits is even though it takes a while – they generally come into production faster than the nut varieties, but nuts bring a whole different uh, level of things with the protein source and things like that. Are there yes. any particular nut trees that you're growing, or any ones that maybe you can get into production a little earlier than the uh, you know the the, the they've gone 50 years it takes to get a Carpathian walnut producing? Uh, yeah, nut trees are more of a long term uh, in general, uh, yeah, operation. Um, uh, but I have found that chestnuts um, uh, they grow they're, they're more they grow more like weeds. Uh, the chestnuts over in, in my area at least grow very fast and you know producing in in certainly under the ten years and maybe was as early as five years. Awesome. Um, and now of course you can't grow the American chestnuts anymore without getting that chestnut blight. But the Chinese chestnuts and there's a few other species you can grow and they don't get the blight at all. Uh, and, and now, you know, uh, chestnuts do have some, some protein, uh, but they're, one, they're unusual in that they're one of the few nuts that have a lot of carbohydrates as well. So if we're trying to, to, to plant for your, your paleo diet, um, you really more the traditional nuts, you know, pecans and walnuts. Well, let me just say, if I'm going to eat something with carbohydrates in it, chestnuts rank high on my list of things to eat. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot different to me than, than a grain-based carbohydrate because the way it's chemically made up is intrinsically different. And, uh, God, they taste good when you mix them, uh, when you, when you use them to make like a stuffing with sausage for, for turkey, which is a hell of a lot more paleo-friendly than breadcrumbs. <laughs> so I've had to plant some. The other one I want to ask you about that chestnuts make me think of, and I've got quite a few plants. Jason Akers from the Self-Sufficient Gardener just sent me, and I'll be getting some more, um, are uh, filberts. Have you done anything with filberts? I've not had a lot of success with, with filberts. You know, and, and the American ver- version of filbert is, is called hazelnut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in the eastern half of the country, again, the humid uh, part of the U.S., uh, there's this, uh, this light uh, that... Well, if you try to plant just the, the pure filberts, um, you're not going to get very far. Yeah. I've tried to plant filbert hazelnut crosses because the filberts have the bigger the bigger nuts, bigger than wild hazelnuts. Okay. Uh, and I've tried to plant the crosses, and I've not had a lot of success yet. The, the few nuts that I've gotten, you know, some kind of you know chipmunk or something is, is <laughs> finds them before I do. Uh, but they're yeah, they're a wonderful nut, and they will will produce faster. Um, at least where they'll produce. It's weird to me because, like, they produce really well in Washington, which is not dry at all, but it's a different climate, a very different climate, I guess. They do have a dry summer. Uh, I, th- I think that's the key, that, you know, at least along the, even along the coast there, uh, it doesn't rain much, not much humidity in the summer. Yeah, you're right. You know, you go there in August and September, and you're like, what's all this rain you guys talk about? And, and they're like, shh, we just say that so nobody will move here. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, cool. So, uh, are, you, are, are there any other nuts in particular that you're growing? I mean, we do a lot of pecans down here in the south, and yeah. they grow in the right environment, well cared for, with good fertility. Um, you won't believe what a what a pecan tree will look like from stick to seven years from now. They they get really big really fast, but they don't necessarily produce really well. Uh, even when they start producing, it's it's intermittent. One year they'll produce good, next year they produce, and then at about ten, fifteen years, then they start going crazy, and you're cussing yourself for planting so many of them, and you drive the tractor over them, and it's like shooting missiles out of both sides, and and what have you. Yeah, pecans are one of the best. I mean, they're one of the best tasting. Uh, they can be very productive, uh, and, and yeah, the production is, is intermittent uh, frequently, but uh, and they're long lived. I mean, I've seen a pecan tree at Mount Vernon that was alive when George Washington was alive. Uh, sure. So, um, I mean, if you're planning for the future, pecans are the way to go, uh, and uh, they do require a, a fairly, you know, fertile uh, soil. Uh, their close relatives are hickory nuts. Um, which can take the, the rockier, drier, you know, poorer soil. Uh, they're not nearly, the, the nuts aren't as nearly as big uh, and as easy to get to as pecans. Yeah, I've got them everywhere wild, and they're they're tough. They really are a tough yeah. nut. The, the, the nut meat's really good, but, man, you're going to spend a lot of calories per calorie uh, gained. Right. Uh, I, I, I almost, I don't think that anybody's come up with like a mechanized way of shelling hickories. If they did, it might make them viable, but, and I know there's some hickory hybrids that are somewhere between, or maybe not hybrids, but varieties that are a little bit thinner shelled and all, but the wild ones, I mean, if you gotta survive and you have a rock, you can smash them open, but, uh, I even find the squirrels don't seem that in love with hickories. They'll chew into one side, pull a little bit out, and kind of toss it to the side and go, you know, acorns are better than nests. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I find squirrels are a big issue with nuts. Uh, um, you know, I've got a lot of black walnuts just growing wild on my property, and, and that's another nut, nut that's, that's tough to get inside. Uh, and you've got to spend a lot of calories to, to, to eat your, your walnut calories. And, and I've tried growing the, the Carpathian walnut, mm-hmm. the English walnut, the Persian walnut. Um, and, and the squirrels, they will, they will go on those trees and pick those nuts Three months before they're ready. Correct. When they see it's not ready, they'll go on to they'll drop it on the ground and go on to the next one. Yeah. They love them. Yeah, I had that problem with a peach tree in Texas. The freaking squirrels would go down there about a week before the peaches would get ripe. They'd pull the peach off. They'd eat a little bit out of it, throw it on the ground, pull a peach off, and eat another little bit out of it. And uh, they got to meet uh, Beeman, Mr. Beeman. Uh, and, uh, that kind of fixed that problem. And in fact, I found out I didn't have to eradicate them. All I had to do is, like, I plucked about four of them and turned them into stew. And the other ones were like, yeah, we'll eat the sunflower seeds in the bird feeder. This is, uh, this is uh, not a good place for us to be. I'm sure I would have had to do that every year. That was the last year. We got one peach tree. It was about four years old. And I got about six five gallon buckets of peaches off of it. Wow. I mean, it was, uh, and, and, but the year before I got like three that the squirrels didn't eat and those were wormed, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's really, they're another variable. Have you done anything with almonds? You know, almonds, uh, they bloom very, very early. So if, if you're in an area susceptible to spring frost, um, you're not going to get almonds. And almonds, again, don't like a humid summer. So uh, mm. I think pretty much you, you're relegated to, to being out west uh, for, for going on. I love almonds. Now, there is an apricot. I grow, I grow some apricots uh, that are have some resistance to brown rot. Uh, that, that's a fungus. That's a big problem in, in the east here. And uh, one type called harcot has uh, kernels, which taste a lot like almonds. Oh, wow. They're close relatives. And... Um, uh, you, you know, uh, they, they've got a little bit of cyanide in them, like a lot of uh, seeds, uh, like apple seeds too. But so I, I don't eat too many at a time. But uh, but they're wonderful. There's a variety of almond that's not really an almond, and it escapes me which one it is. It's either a Hall's Hardy or all in one. It's really a peach, but it's a lot hardier in certain areas where normally almonds won't grow. I don't know how that, ha- but it's one or the other of those two. 
Um, and it, when you when you read the description in the Rain Tree catalog, you find out it really is like a, a pathetic peach, you know. And then it's the kernels in there, and uh, but it, it's very almond-like. And I was thinking about giving those a shot. Have you tried any of the other stuff that maybe people have not generally heard of or don't see in the in the grocery store, like any of the Korean uh, cherries or Japanese cherries that are really a prune or I mean a plum or anything like that or a, uh, any of the uh, I don't know anything like that that you know you've got good results out of. There are a lot of things from Asia which uh, are, are being brought and have been brought over here. Uh, you know, like China tends to have a, a very similar climate climate to much of the U.S. Uh, and so the Asian pears and the Asian persimmons. Uh, now you do see those in the store some. Yeah. Uh, but uh, those can be wonderful. Uh, the Asian pears, and if you want to uh, try to keep uh, fruit into the winter uh, in, a, in a root cellar, I call it a fruit cellar, uh, there are some very, uh, very good Asian pears for that. Uh, and the Asian persimmons, now, they're a little touchy as far as uh, winter temperatures. Um, they're not as hardy as the American persimmons, but they're a lot sweeter, a lot bigger, and a lot, a lot more luscious. Yeah, and there's even some of those that are not astringent, so you don't have to bleth them, which I'll cover that because I realize some people might go, do what? Uh, persimmons that are astringent, folks, you do what's called bleding, which means basically you take them when they look nice and ripe, and if you bite into it or slice a piece off and put it in your mouth right there, uh, if you ever remember the uh, the old uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons where Jerry would pour alum in the cat's mouth, <laughs> would, that's about what happens. It's just, you're like, what have I done? Yeah. Uh, but they sit on a, you let them sit out at room temperature for a few days and they'll get softer and they'll sweeten up. So, uh, the astringent and non-astringent varieties, uh, persimmon, the astringent varieties need that bleeding. So there's like, I think it's called Euro is one and there's one other Asian one I know that are non-astringent. So they can pretty much go from tree to table. Uh, and I haven't grown any of those. I'm like you, I've got wild persimmon everywhere around here. Unfortunately, none of them are growing on my property. They're all my neighbor's property. Fortunately, my neighbor's all like, we don't got no use for them. I'm like, well, cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I do, you know. Uh, but they are small and, and kind of seeded. But you can do a lot of stuff with them. Um, I've been thinking about doing some kind of a persimmon ale. I've never heard of that done before, but it seems like it has potential. Persimmon ice cream. Awesome. Persimmon ice cream, cool. I never thought of that either, persimmon ice cream. Maybe persimmon mead. <laughs> You're exactly right about the astringency and, and, and non-astringent persimmons. You know, I, I, let me set a little aside here. I'm amazed at, at how expert you are on such a wide variety of topics. I mean, you, you really hit the, you know, when I listen to your podcast and you're, you're speaking about a subject that I'm, uh, you know, pretty educated on, you really hit the nail on the head, you know, 98% of the time. So, my compliments. Well, thank you. I think it's just that I'm one of those people with one of those memories that, um, I can learn about something 10 years ago and then have a conversation about it today. It, it's not really smart. It's recallability. And, uh, I, I've always, kind of been blessed with it and it, it made school very boring because I could just read the book on the first day and give me the test and leave me alone so I did really terrible in school actually I was a terrible student because uh, I was bored I uh, didn't really care you know uh, but that's why I, I mean, that's why I get into this stuff so deep is I care you know I love this stuff and, and to me the fact that you know, you can gain some knowledge, apply it, and then feed yourself is huge and then to do what you're doing where you do it in such a way that you can feed your kids after you're gone uh, or maybe have your grandchild uh, hand a piece of fruit or a nut or something to your great-grandchild and say, hey, guess what? Your great-grandfather planted this 100 years ago. Um, that used to be the way things were, and now it's a very rare thing. And I feel very encouraged that like people have figured out that we're actually missing something when we don't have that and that there's a big movement afoot to kind of return that. Yeah, there's something very satisfying about that, about working uh, for the long-term future, uh, and, and that's really what a what an orchard is, and that's a big big part of it for me. Maybe we can talk as we're getting ready to wrap up here a little bit more about some of the uh, the, the quicker return stuff, like you know different berries and stuff, like strawberries and all. Um, are you doing much with those, or do you have environmental issues there? Or uh, strawberries are great; uh, they'll grow in a variety of climates, and yes, they produce very quickly. Uh, you'll get fruit the next year, uh, and they do uh, you know last for a few years. Um, the, the issue with strawberries is they're awfully low growing, and uh, 
So um, they don't outgrow the weeds. You you got to be be there pretty heavily on the weeding. Um, but they're a wonderful fruit. Uh, they're the first thing in spring. Um, the one variety in particular called Early Glow is is not only one of the earliest producing, but uh, also one of the most de- disease resistant. Awesome, awesome. I found that if you get uh, you know. Uh, what do they call them? The varieties that, that reproduce with uh, runners, running varieties. Yeah, they uh, they seem to uh, to do a lot better of a job of holding weeds back than a, a mounding variety. Um, and but you're right, you got to stand the weeds, or you have to put something in the. To me, the way you combat a weed is you figure out why it's there, and it's there because there's room for it. So then we have to take something that's not a weed that can coexist and put it in that place. So things like mullins and comfries and stuff like that, if we give them or, or low-growing other non-invasive, you know, like, like aslum, uh, a lot of times if we interplant stuff like that, we can not totally control the weeds, but we can get a lot better uh, grip on the weeds. Or if we plant something that our rabbits or, or our, our chickens will eat, then we can at least we get something out of yanking them out and, 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 and turning them over to somebody else. Yeah, I find I, find, uh, I don't mind uh, leaving the low-growing weeds uh, so much because they they'll outcompete the, the other weeds and, and then they won't you know shade my uh, the plants that I'm trying to grow. Yeah, what what would you say the biggest um, biggest joy you get out of this is? Is it just working out there? Is it eating? Is it the whole package? Is you know when you're out there on a on a winter's day uh, and you know, everybody else say oh it's so cold out but uh, you're you're moving you're generating your body heat there's no snakes there's no bugs there's no humidity you know it's forty something degrees um, and it's peaceful it, that's just uh, just can't and then and then I can walk by a persimmon tree stand and say yes there's fruit fruit in January and it's just uh, it, it's a very um, compelling uh, satisfying situation. I'm glad I just remembered this. You mentioned something kind of as a side, and I didn't jot it down, but it came out of my brain here. Uh, you mentioned you have a root cellar, but you call it a fruit cellar. Well, uh, yeah, if you want to try to store fruits year-round, um, you need some, some cool but not freezing uh, winter storage, and that was the traditional way to go about it was to have a root cellar. You know, people put potatoes and, you know, parsnips and uh you know, beets and a variety of other types of uh, foods down there. I, I I like growing fruit, and uh, to try to, to get my own fresh fruit uh, year round, you know, e- even through the winter and into the early spring. Um, uh, you know, the kiwi fruit are great for that, by the way. Um, yeah, so you have something that's uh, uh, depending on your climate, either all the way in the ground or partly in the ground. Uh, you know, try to keep it refrigerator temperature as long as you can. Uh, that works great for for storing a lot of stuff. From like a prep standpoint, I, I imagine that having all of this food production that just kind of goes on without you gives you quite a decent sense of security for your own life. Yeah, you know, you know, as far as uh, prepping for for hard times. Uh, an orchard is is really a long term storage facility, uh, and really it's it's not you don't have to keep filling up uh, the food storage system. You, it gets it just produces more and more food. The, the longer you let it grow, the the more you're getting. Uh, and uh, I just think you, you can't beat that for prepping. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's one thing. How do I make sure this food lasts? Well, if you only pick it as you need it, uh, nature does a pretty good job of. Uh, a lot of a lot of plants will hold mast for not ever, obviously, because the whole point is for reproduction. But for a lot longer than mast will do well sitting on your shelf. That's right. You know, and, you know, I, I find the, the whole uh, the whole thing about working in your orchard uh, goes along along with your uh, philosophy of. You know, preparing for hard times, but having uh, an enjoyable life, even if hard times never come. Uh, and I find that, you know, that that's really what you know, working outside in nature, working with plants, building for the future. Um, really, that uh, that fits so well with what you've been talking about for the last few years. So I, I just was thinking here toward the end. Do you do do you do quite a bit of pruning? Uh, yes, uh, you know, nut trees, you don't hardly need any pruning. Um, 
you know, some trees, you know, pears like they want to go straight up, uh, and, and you know, nut trees they could they can drop them from forty feet. The nuts and that's fine, but that's not so good for like pears or for apples. And see, I, I do a fair amount of pruning. Um, again, I find that fairly uh, not too onerous a job. I'm just thinking you get a resource out of that because I mean, using things like apple chips uh, for smoking meat is. Uh, a pretty cool thing, or some larger pieces of wood you could propagate mushrooms with as well, I guess. And I make brush piles, and I plant my vines, like kiwi vines, on ah. brush piles. Uh, that way the deer can't get at them. Um, you know, I'm covering the the, the, uh, the, the brush piles, uh, the the pruned branches, they eventually degrade. You've got sort of a, a hugel culture type of uh, of area, it's a, it's a win-win situation. Awesome, awesome. I know whenever we used to build up brush piles, too, they always increased the rabbit population, which I guess if you're growing lettuce is a problem, but they're not really a problem other than you got to protect your trunks until you, you know, that you prevent them from chewing at the cambium. Uh, that's another protein source. Um, why raise rabbits in a hutch if they're dumb enough to hop in front of the 22? <laughs> it's so much less work, you know. Um and I, I like rabbit, you know, farm-raised rabbit. It's it's good quality meat. It tastes good. But um, it doesn't compare with, uh, you know, good, healthy, wild cottontail for flavor. I, I really uh, – I, I grew up as a country boy in, uh, in, in the, you know, kind of a mix between the mining country and the uh, farming country in Pennsylvania. And we lived on things like, when I, you know, squirrel meat, deer meat, rabbit, even uh, – we, we, we would eat groundhogs. Uh, if they were younger ones that we would shoot, we'd take the back legs and the, the back meat off of them. And um, we just lived on So Where I grew up, today, still, the first day of deer season, school's closed. Because if it wasn't, half the kids wouldn't be there anyway. Um, and to me, what you're doing with an orchard just basically plugs into that existing ecosystem. You're growing a open glade forest. You're just choosing what grows there. And I think that's what people miss when they say, like, permaculture has, you know, there's permaculture won't work because you can't just let things go. Well, you don't just let things go. You you steer and you guide and you control, but then you use natural systems. I hope someday I'll get up that way. I'd love to see what you're doing there, man. Sure. Come on up when you're in Central Virginia. It, it might happen this year. We'll see. I've got quite a few things planned. Uh, trying to get, I'm trying to get out to the East Coast areas more because that's where we haven't been yet to meet people. And uh, so, like, we'll be in New Hampshire uh, this month. And uh, I was going to be in North Carolina in March, but that kind of fell through. Anyway, David, um, great interview, man. Thanks for being with us here today. Uh, any final thoughts for folks? No, I'm, I'm just uh, very happy to uh, contribute to your. Uh your podcast and I want to thank you for uh, the years of, of information and, and inspiration well thanks for coming and sharing with us you know that you're actually doing this stuff and you've been doing this stuff for over 20 years and the results you've had and some of the things you've learned from it because I'm sure it'll help other people avoid mistakes and uh, I really appreciate you being here with us today and with that folks this has been Jack Spirico today with David Consalvo helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody else.